Welcome to Making Conversations, a podcast from makers Gemma Millen and Robin Galway. Today we are making conversations with Heather Dornan Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Making Conversations podcast. This episode we are speaking to multidisciplinary maker Heather Dornan Wilson. Hello. Hello. So you're a multidisciplinary maker. You really have such a massive range of different disciplines that you make within. How did that get started for you? Were you creative as a child? What was your childhood like in terms of making? Well, my mum was really good at sewing. My nanny was great at knitting. My dad was really good with his hands. So I'm one of uh, five kids. I'm the youngest and the only girl. My mum and dad probably really used a lot of their homemaker skills to create toys or little outfits for my dolls or my dad made a nice bunk bed for my little my little dolls as well and uh, would have made shields and stilts and all sorts of things for my brothers so kind of was just surrounded by making although that wasn't what any of them did but it was for creating home and also as a child of the 70s a lot of our things would have been made we were taught to make toys and things in school as well we actually had handcrafts as part of the curriculum back in those days. From coming from quite a creative family or resourceful family, how did you find yourself in school? Were you quite creative? Obviously having that handicrafts element of school, I'm sure was quite a nice introduction to it, but was it, did you always know that you were gonna go into the arts? Not at all. I would have been very easy going at school. Easy going, was lazy really. I was more interested in social. Um, aspects of school. I enjoyed most subjects, you know, so I was quite mixed. And even whenever I was choosing my subjects, I was kind of looking at languages, French and Arabic for one, drama for another thing. Amazing. Uh, uh, I applied to art college, but kind of not expecting anything. I did do art A level, but my teacher, I think, was in despair. We had quite a, a lively class. Uh, relatively, I was probably quite quiet, which says a lot about how lively wow. my would have been. <laughs> um, I, I think that I use my dramatic skills to kind of talk about how I wasn't in an arty mood and how it would have, you know, wrecked the piece that I was working on. But yeah, so I wasn't really that committed to doing stuff. I really enjoyed it, but didn't have any drive for going that direction. I guess after I left uni, or, or sorry, I started in uni, I actually did a drama and English degree in Stranmost for teaching. I actually probably drew more that year to give presents to my friends to put in their college, their walls and wherever they were living. So yeah, I probably did more then than I did at school, to be honest. What did you specialise in uni? Did you do the foundation first? Was it a different setup then? Yeah, what material kind of attracted you most? Well, I, you know, our art college was my second degree, um, so I'd actually been teaching for five years in primary school and had a baby and had postnatal depression for the first year when he was born. And it was art and he relaxed me, so I kind of decided that I would quite like to go back. I think it was that was maybe the thing that drove me to, to kind of realise how much I really like that art was in my veins. Yeah. I think as well, you kind of have to make a choice about whether you're going to take a risk to go down that line whenever you're, you've got a family or you've got the start of a wee family, you know. So I actually did a nighttime course when he was born in Castlereagh College and it was one night a week for three hours and I did my A-levels, probably did more in those three hours one day a week with a new baby than I actually did whenever... I think I was back to teaching that year as well. So it was like, um, 
yeah so much they did a lot more than I ever did at school which tells you how little I did at school (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed what I was doing now (laughs) so yeah then I I got unconditionally accepted into Foundation Art College and went on to do a textile degree but it was fine applied art textiles which kind of probably formed how I am a combo of fine and applied art thinking. You're based in Belfast now. Did you grow up in Belfast? Yeah, I grew up on the hills above Castle Ray and the Beach Grove kind of area, like East Belfast. And I East Belfast, so I haven't moved that far around Belfast. but (laughs) But I have been born and bred here. Yeah. And so you said about how your motivation really changed whenever mm-hmm. you went back then for that second degree. Do you believe that that then influenced the work that you were making, if it was a very fine and applied art focused discipline? I guess whenever I, I started my fine and applied art textile degree, one of the things that we looked at was about the context and the history of textiles. And for me, it was very much about coming from a family who did a lot of make do and mend. You know, they talked about the war. And that's where my mum and my nanny came from. And this whole idea of using what was around you. I, at the same time, was also working with the lovely Anna Osborlin, who you've had a conversation with, I'm sure, before in this podcast. But Anne was really good in that because I had a real hunger for things I didn't know about as much as I did know. So textiles was my language. It was kind of something I didn't need to think about because I'd grown up so much absorbed in it. So as a kind of means of expression, I was really, I really honoured where I came from, but I had a curiosity for other areas of exploration, I guess. And I'm being a silversmith and jeweller, but also like her affinity with materials is so huge. I think she really influenced my passion and love to look at materials as a language, as a visual language that could explore ideas. And there was inherent language in each material that could actually capture ideas that are in your head. So I think for me, the fine arts end of it, I think it's probably very much inspired by um, grilling my brain. <laughs> um, really challenging um, how I thought about work on how I connected materials and thoughts, which I'm kind of indebted to because I think it is very much how I thought, you know, I, I mentioned that I'd done a drama and English degree and I taught as well. One of my A-levels was English uh, literature. So my love of metaphor and all poetry kind of, I, I guess, merged through Anne's tutorship into something that was a way of thinking metaphorically about the world through material. So visually, could you describe what it was that you were making or did you see like a development from your first year in university doing the applied arts degree until your final year? Was there like a, a heather language, you know, in how you make, made or was application of different materials just so diverse that you didn't really have a signature necessarily? I think the signature was probably in terms of the concept and idea in between second and third year. I had to take you out because I had a little family. I'd had my second child between foundation and first year. So I had a little break in between that I got into the course. So I then had two little tiny toddlers, slash babies. Third year, between second and third year, to take another year out just to help with finances. So I was teaching a little bit and got pregnant. So <laughs> I think my third year with my third child. <laughs> But what was really interesting is that when I was in second year and realised that I was going to have to take a year out, and I remember my tutors at the time saying to me, that's really good, you know, you haven't really been, you know, this is, you know, you just don't look like you're enjoying yourself. And I was like, I'm a maker. 
this is what relaxes me, this is what I love, this is what makes me me. It was very unusual, but fortunately I was working with Anne as well. And Anne had introduced me to this really intriguing fabric. It was a retroflective fabric that when you worked with it from the opposite side, kind of created an optical illusion. The one thing that I discovered that year is that I was really intrigued by creating layering of material that was all about the unknown and what I could see and or couldn't see as much as what I could see. And this idea of that there is more to an object or to a material or to something or even a person that makes the eye. And it was that kind of idea that we are more than what is just the idea that there is tangible and intangible about how we look at things and perceive things. And that kind of remarkably held on with a year out having a new baby and trying to uh, get your brain back again um, into third year. And, uh, you know, again, I was so grateful, Dan, to allow me, let me loose to kind of discover that this kind of idea of risk and unknown and material play, because at that stage I was also pestering the lovely Camilla, who was the print technician. I was working in ceramics. I was working in metal. I was working in... Um, looking at insulation and how, how I could build a curved wall, which at that time was really tricky. And just that combo of being able to layer up and build ideas around a multiplicity of materials, but actually going to the same point, you know, that we're all kind of looking at the same idea and building that layering of the unknown to try and capture an idea. I mean, that was such an incredible path for you to have taken with such a young family as well that I can really understand that need to just keep pushing forward to stand as a maker you know but at the same time as someone who went to uni and had went through the fine and applied art degree I just think oh my gosh you know for you to have have all that going on at the same time I don't know how you, you did it but to then also work in different disciplines as well with different materials and understanding those and using those to convey your own message. That is such an incredible feat for anybody to do. Do you reflect back now and think, yeah, I am a wonder woman? Not so much. I think for my friends and other people who are in the same boat, because I think as women, a lot of us have so many things that we have to juggle. But you know, just to do the stereotype of women all, we're like spider webs. We're all trying to hold it all into the same point, you know. So when I started to be a little more gentle and kind to myself, instead of feeling like a total failure at everything, because generally in college, I would have done really lousy uh, kind of <laughs> stuff before Christmas, because I was trying to actually use all my making skills to make money to sell things for Christmas or to make cards for a business or whatever it was. And all that energy and time creativity was going into making stuff that wasn't building my coursework, but it was trying to support my family by Christmas presents for the boys. And then afterwards, all the thinking that was brewing inside, because it's not that we stop thinking, we just get distracted by having no time and having other commitments and things. But it was like after Christmas when all the thinking that had been building in frustration because I didn't have the time and energy to, to maybe do what I really wanted to do, then that came out and usually then my marks were good after Christmas. Um, so um, I, I kind of was not, I had to kind of, I suppose it was good having 
and done like a degree and realizing that marks aren't really the be all and end all. It's about what I'm learning, what I'm growing, what I'm processing, how my brain is being stretched, how my skills are being stretched. And it was those kind of things that I had to kind of focus on rather than caught up on what mark did I get? Because nobody really asks you after you leave college. Yeah. So yeah. So one of the things you asked me about was, did I think I was Wonder Woman? No, I thought I was a failure at everything. I was not so good as a mum because I was distracted by art. I was not so good as a, a daughter, as a, a a kind of friend. You know, felt like I was letting everybody down. I knew that I wasn't producing what I I had inside me. I knew you had more potential. So you always felt like you were a little bit underselling. So, but then I rebranded myself. Because I realized that doing 27% of one thing, 56% of another, 68% of another, 92% of another, you know, under the 100%. But when you add them together, it was 300 and something percent. And I thought, I'm three incredible women in one body. So that was my rebranding. And I actually was much more gentle with myself about what I was doing and with my friends as well. Because I was trying to say to them, we are actually super women. We're just doing too much. absolutely I really 100% relate to that especially at the moment because I feel like as a maker I'm juggling so much and I'm trying to keep everything in the air and things are dropping and then I'm picking them up before anybody really even notices that I've dropped anything and there is that massive built-in pressure and guilt that if you are a woman that if you're making as well that you know you have these massive standards to that you're holding yourself up against but then also to have the pressures of a young family too and not that you know these are pressures that we're putting on ourselves they're not you know something that we need to really um even have these are things that are built into ourselves that is just not helpful in the slightest but to even hear you saying that you believed that you were a failure you know while doing all of this incredible stuff you know it's just it's really relatable but it also is really upsetting in a way and that you know you should never have felt that you know just in that moment that you felt like you were failing so that rebranding must have just felt very empowering for you to just suddenly have had that realization that yes you know you're acknowledging exactly what it is that it is your greatness that's your strength but even from then we know that you then went on and done a master's degree as well was that very close after you graduated then from the yeah, applied art in, so it didn't have any more babies um, <laughs> um but no it was interesting um what you're saying about the I, I guess you know the interesting thing about art is somebody you know you still was talk about a good art college and find yourself in a very mocking way (laughs) Um, because you know it's they you often think about or people often think about artists as sort of high flitting and kind of navel gazing and but actually that rebranding I I mentioned about this kind of idea that we are if we take a human being and we see their body as a tangible object and you can kind of guess age you can kind of see what they wear how they talk you know and make assumptions from that you know you also then have the unknowns that are inside me you know which is is the potential what makes me tick what makes me um what makes me sad what makes me motivated we can't see those we can see the impact of the internal and the external kind of happening because what happens inside me dictates what I do with my I guess in terms of seeing yourself as a failure, I remember reading an article on Lessie which was called Failure is Glorious. 
And it was really liberating because it talked about how Alessi as a design company played with quirk and pushed themselves to the edge of things that uh, might fail. And they actually had a, a museum of all the things that didn't work that they created. But they talked about how to push yourself to that very nth degree to try something and not be afraid of failure, not be sort of just aiming to be amazing, but to push yourself because how much we learn from failure and for things not working. But also there's that potential of if we push ourselves to that edge, we will also do incredible things. And I think it was at that point that I really understood the connection between us as human beings, as something that is broken, not doesn't have that perfection with also these these incredible parts of us that have beauty and hope and potential and and success as well and it's this really fine line between the two and I think that was really liberating and so in in that exploration of materials or in that thinking it also really liberated me as a person so that idea of vulnerability and strength or beauty and brokenness, those juxtapositions of those ideas at that point as I rebranded myself in a sense was coming out of actually learning that us human beings were pretty incredible, dealing with our circumstances, living through our circumstances and creating gold, you know. How did you find then being in your masters, you know, was it a different pace because you had the your three boys to care for as well did you find that you got more involved in this yeah in your masters just how did you feel that you had kind of moved on or worked through that space I guess um masters was more of the same exploring through other types of materials I started working a bit with glass which wasn't in the college but I had gathered money together I think we actually got burgled (laughs) And we're supposed to have bought like the CDs back. And I used the CDs to pay for glass lessons. <laughs> so as you do. But um, masters, I, th- I think another massive learning curve is sometimes we wait for situations to change. And actually we just need to live in them and through them and accept that this is what we're living with. You know, so having three boys who were amazing and full of mischief, um, but really sweet kids, having an a family who were really supportive in terms of my my parents, my parents-in-law, who were really helpful at helping look after them or just collect them from crash. There was always the struggle of not having any money, trying to pay for crash, trying to pay for, you know, materials, trying to pay for everything. And at that time, my husband would have been away a lot with his work. And, you know, so I think knowing that this is really what I want to do and being hungry and passionate for what you want to do kind of gets you through a lot of the hardships of trying to do something with real life happening as well. I think again it was another time that I had to realise that this is actually my life and this is my lot and again the beauty of what that life looks like because I wouldn't have swapped anything for the world But at the same time, it isn't always easy. So the really good thing is that the break between second and third year allowed me to continue straight on to my master's really cemented the fact that I was really passionate about this subject. I'm really passionate about messy, growing human beings. So to actually be able to have the, uh, the joy and the kind of privilege of being able to articulate that through materials and explore it has been both 
hugely useful for me in terms of accepting myself as a person but also being able to create conversations around it with other people. So the master's continued on (laughs) and I think even at the end of the master's you realise with experience and time and wisdom that we don't ever finish what we're looking at as artists. I think we are on a journey and journeys are always one of those trite things that people try to express at some point in their artistic life but actually we seriously are on a journey and my master my degree was a point where I shared a little bit of my thinking with people my master's was a point every exhibition I've done is a point where I'm sharing some of the thinking but my thinking doesn't end with that exhibition that degree with that master's it continues because when I go back to the Alessi failure is glorious article it made me realize that actually Every time I do something, I can be really proud of what I've done now, but I can also be choosing to grow and not settle that that's all I can do. And it allows me to be an artist for the rest of my life because I have an excuse to even if I feel I can do something new and I have incredible successes, I can continue on because the journey isn't over. It's a continuing adventure. So you said that you paid for some glass classes. I mean, Did you choose different materials to try and express something that visually you couldn't get through the material that you were currently working on? You know, what was the push to try all of these different materials? And what was it like whenever you first started working with glass? Was it glass blowing? Was it casting? How did you kind of access that? I accessed it because I was really interested in the idea of the optical. So I am always intrigued by light and shadow I'm always intrigued by what we see so I had bought a whole load of double convex lenses and I've been taking photographs with that you know the early part you know whenever I was researching before Christmas when I always do really badly with marks um, <laughs> but I had been collecting glass objects I was fascinated I was literally playing with them I was experimenting with projecting and things and warping and changing how I see them because again that tangible intangible idea uh, that I linked with human kept on coming back and it was to find objects or materials or you know shiny surfaces mirror polished buildings and stainless steel and the environment everywhere I looked I was seeing something that I could recognize of myself reflected in it but that was warping and saying there's more to this than what you see there's more than you know what you visually see with your eyes so glass just seemed like a perfect collecting it even you know when you sit and play with a a wine glass or with there's water in it you know and you see the light that's kind of cast from it that extends the object into something more beautiful or more unusual or you see a crack in something that actually when you get light in it it's like the the old Leonard Cohen song about when cracks let light in you just have this whole different perspective on what it looks like so glass seemed perfect so I worked with Carl Haran one of our local makers and actually after my master's was apprenticed with him through the making it program with Craft NI and at the time I was asked are you going to be a glass maker and I remember at the interview saying no I'm not <laughs> but, um, but at the time it was really pertinent language because of the light that you can build refraction reflection so as a material, it was really pertinent to what I was doing. And I, you know, so which is why I invested in learning about it. I think I I watch and I, I probably play with materials more 
then I produce materials. So in terms of making or, you know, making products out of things, it's usually about the play and the experimentation and the understanding of the language of that material. So I remember Carl saying it was intrigued because I remember him saying to me that I did stuff that, you know, I kind of broke rules a little bit because I didn't know anything like glass. The more you know about glass, the more you know you don't know. And it actually yeah. was scary. <laughs> so, um, but I was drawing through fusing glass and building layers and understanding how the light could go through it. So I was using it as a drawing technique. And also the start of glass blowing, I didn't do glass blowing, but we did gathers and these created these lovely optical balls and domes and materials that actually when I played with, um, they created this idea of the dull convex lens. So it was very simplified versions of working with glass, but because in the simplicity of when it cracked or when it fused in a way that created light shadows or the optical that actually then I mixed with photography and creating light boxes and sculptural objects that you could play with what people see and play with people's brains and play with their intrigue that was what I wanted out of the glass but it was about the beauty of it as material. So it seemed like your rebranding was hugely connected to your really immersive educational pathway. Sorry that sounded really... (laughs) (laughs) It was very (laughs) art language wasn't it? (laughs) But um, even completing your master's and then working with Carl as well how did you keep that momentum going after the making it program my time with craft and i was making it was quite different from other people because because i was with an individual artist the tools or the kiln went to carl because he was investing and letting somebody else in also as a maker carl was actually he actually went on residency because he is an individual maker and what he was doing was working with other institutions and things so i had to be quite self-sufficient throughout university. I realised because I'm mixed disciplinary, I had to be quite self-sufficient, go find what I wanted to learn and not rely on other people. So the difference, I guess, between me finishing and making it is because I didn't have the backup of a nice, safe environment like a uni or an art centre or I didn't have any, I had no studio when I finished. Um, I had no tools when I finished except for what I'd bought slowly over um, my time in art college and after. I fortunately was able to get um, SAP funding from the Arts Council, which is great. I think you have to dream up your own projects and ways of working. While I was in in the making programme as well, I worked in the art college for a year and ironically having shifted a lot into working with metal and working with ceramics and working with everything but textiles, I worked as an art tutor in the textile department, fine applied art, um, which I loved. It was really great and I realised that I not only love making but I love passing on passion for making. I love teaching people to fall in love with their subject and also to kind of explore the materiality so a lot of what I learned from my tutors and through frustrations as well I was able to pass on independent thinking or how do you process things how do we extend what we do way beyond our college how do we be self-sufficient because it is really hard it's really hard to be motivated it's really hard to keep yourself going it's really hard to be self-employed this is when I guess when there's nothing else around, you realise that your peer group and your, your cohort of people here in the arts and craft sector are incredibly 
wonderful when we talk to each other, when we encourage each other, when we do our little crits with each other, when we kind of go, well, what does this look like? That is when the honesty, when the struggle, because I think when you struggle alongside other people, you build really strong bonds. And I would say my friends are what has encouraged me as well as realising that life has ups and downs and roller coasters. And it's not just the kind of internal struggle of, you know, even when you get past the feeling of having to be a perfectionist and being okay about some things working, some things not working, as opposed to failure, because I think failure is a big label. It's not about that. It's about growing and about the growing processes when there's natural kind of picks and troughs in it. There are times when things are successful and there's times when things have to be a little bit dormant. We know that you were part of Mac 9. Could you talk to us a little bit about your experience with it? Yeah, it kind of grew out of frustration because I guess in, during my time with the Making It program, one of the things I was constantly asked was about my products, about my business plan, which are all really important things, but I didn't fit into the normal business plan or product making. I was so interesting research and pushing the boundaries of what making could articulate or explore and it wasn't always just about making a business I think connecting with Stuart who had done my master's with and then Gail Matten who was another making it sort of person that uh, in the two years that I was doing it all of us didn't quite fit purely that the kind of angle that other people would have and it was Craft and I had actually done like an art symposium with an artist called Helen Karnak who had been involved with the slow movement and she had come over and I think the three of us happened to all be at the same uh, event up in, in Millennium Court at the same time and had a conversation with Helen which was really inspiring because she was a very efficient and risk-taking maker and really articulate with the materials she used but actually was really interested in collaborative processes with dancers and just pushing the boundaries of how we think about craft and it kind of resonated with, I remember Stuart and I particularly having a conversation, but having had individual conversations with Gail as well, we contacted her and we just thought, you know what, if it's not going to happen, let's just do it. Let's just make something that gives opportunities to other people like ourselves and also creates opportunities for ourselves. So that's kind of when Mac Nine was born. You've talked a lot about collaborating with other artists, either to grow and learn or to make work with I mean is collaboration a very important part you know your community means an awful lot to you but to the work do you think it's an integral part of the work and also if so do you have a dream person you'd like to collaborate with yeah collaboration I love collaborating actually said to me once you know you seem to do a lot of collaboration are you afraid to do your own work and it's not at all it's not at all about that I have loads of ideas and loads of thinking that goes on inside me but I am a kind of community creature. <laughs> I love the fact that whenever I, as an artist, start to kind of dream up an idea or kind of just notice something in the environment around me, I'm I'm collaborating in a sense with nature or with materials or whatever. But when you collaborate with another person, that kind of like brain spark exponentially grows even faster and, and bigger. You know, it's like as we're making with our hands, 
our brains are interacting with that conversation but when you're actually making alongside another person bringing your creativity to that and they're bringing theirs it's like that little ratatouille I don't know whether you remember the Pixar film ratatouille when he combines strawberries with something else or chocolate and and, and chili or I don't know what it was but <laughs> that's like the fireworks go off obviously through Mac 9 we did collaborative processes with other makers and artists fine artists like Paula Bernard Bernadelli and Alice Clark. Alice, who's an, an incredible maker, incredibly wonderful with materials. So, you know, the two of us collaborated in a project we did at Castle Board that continued on into various exhibitions in Derry and so on. But I worked with Alice around the idea of the ice house and ice and melting and transient kind of temporary materials that could articulate ideas. I've worked with dancers because I always love, I like, I love dancing. I'm not a dancer, but, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of carry-on dancer. I'm being very polite about how I describe that. But I love the language of movement and I love the, the body as a, as a material. So I've been able to collaborate with Freddie Abogoday um, he's a London-based choreographer and dancer with Susanna McCreate and Maiden Voyage Dance Company on a couple of projects that we've done. One that was performed in the MAC based on a book called The Reason I Jump, which was written by an autistic young boy. And it is beautiful and again articulates this idea that we are humanly imperfect and wonderful simultaneously. So I guess when I collaborate, it's not also about just learning from someone else's skill or whatever but most people that I've collaborated with are people that I really respect in terms of what they do but we also connect on this idea of being passionate about humanity so my current people that I've also worked with are Victoria Sims who's a university lecturer in psychology, Jan Carson who's a writer, local writer and Stephen Beggs who is an actor and actually I've done quite a lot of uh, working conversations and exploring life with Stephen in terms of some of our more recent projects where we also recognise that when you're exploring vulnerable issues that we have to be sensitive to that kind of explore elements of human existence that we live through, like loss and grief or connection and disconnection or trying to find balance. There's an idea that you have to be really honest with yourself. And those practitioners that I've mentioned are really honest about their own processes and life and growing and that really helps it come out in terms of our practice and collaborative practice. The collaborative projects that I did are based on my love of art and science and I always think that there's probably an inner geek in me that's kind of crying to get out and through doing projects like the, the kind of looking at resilience which I did I cited in the University of Ulster in the Art College and um, working with the Applied Art Department at the time and students and the collaborators, which were Susanna McCrate, the dancer, and Victoria, Dr. Victoria Smith, our psychology lecturer. And then moving on to do the notion of balance with Jan Carson, Stephen Beggs. Like, I love that art and science are so similar and they're often perceived to be so different in terms of how we absorb and articulate the world around us. But I, I do think that, you know, for anyone who is coming from a place where they're both creative and have a mind that probes not to be afraid of that because there are spaces and places for it. And I think it's actually refreshing to see 
that alchemy again of not just materiality but also of minds coming together to, to kind of explore things like our humanity creating conversations where it's okay to be you know when we're looking at the notion of balance it's okay to go we can never find it because often when we're exploring these subjects our lives go a bit crazy and there is no sense of balance at all and you're like there is none there is none there's nothing at all but actually it's it's part of making other people feel like it's okay we're doing amazing in the middle of this and it's going back to that being superhuman the 300 and something percent superwoman that many of us are or super person I always said we're in this together I'll try not to use that phrase <laughs> but you know we are in we are in this life together and actually what we have to offer is really beautiful and to encourage each other to do that regardless of our circumstances whenever you did get some more tools together was it that you would acquire tools because of something you were trying to work on or was there kind of an overall theme of I'm going to try and get more glass tools or more ceramics tools or more I know that you have a kiln that uh, actually you have a kiln and a loom that you very generously sort of lend out (laughs) to people so what kind of tools do you think you would use primarily for the most recent types of work that you would have made? (laughs) <laughs> bizarrely coming from making background my most recent tools that I've had to use would be video camera and photography so last year I was doing a project on swimming another lovely artist Janie Pritchard had lent me her her GoPro camera so that I could video underwater trying to capture this idea of inference which is Marcel Duchamp coined it and it was this kind of invisible line between things so he talked about when you sit on a chair there's this residual warmth that's left between your bottom and the chair when you get up it's there and it dissipates. I'd been doing a project with um, the collaborative team that I've been playing with looking at balance and the notion of balance whether it was a real thing or not I was also doing a project last year with two Nottingham artists on a project where 14 artists from Belfast had gone to Nottingham and vice versa. And I ended up working with a kind of mature artist called Peter Ellis, who introduced me to this word inference. And Sarah Tutt, who is a maker, who is another mature student, but she is um, working with ceramics and comes from a dance background. But Peter introduced this, this, this idea of inference. And after this gorgeous conversation with him, I was swimming and... I tend to do a lot of thinking while I'm swimming. It's just a really good space. And I was thinking about this feeling of balance and actually watching my or feeling my body on the top of the surface of the water where it finds that kind of place of balance that's really tentative and also aware of my breath underwater just at that kind of place where air and water meet. Seeing my breath coming out as bubbles through the light that was coming through the water, but how it was there and it dissipated and was gone and thinking about this idea of balance as inference as well. So I actually, in with the GoPro, did a lot of sea swimming last summer and tried to capture with a dog harness with the GoPro attached to my chest upside down, tried to capture my hands moving through the water. So going back to your question is, do I buy tools or do I uh, seek out tools because of, you know, that's a tool that I've always wanted? Or is it, it's more about the materiality, it's more about the 
conversation discussion about today. I've just been asked, and um, Don Richardson from Framework has asked me to do a project or a little piece of work for the mental health festival, looking at online. And she actually has asked me about doing a performance or a video piece because she said, you know, the way you do that. And I laughed and thought, uh, I've done it like once or twice, <laughs> but that's not what my main thing is. I'm actually a maker. You know, it's interesting how people perceive you because of the project that I've just done with them is obviously what I only do. Uh, so I'm going to try and do something that's kind of video based for that one, but not because that's what I'm really good at. It's just because that's what I'm exploring. And it seems to be the language to articulate a few of these ideas that are in my head at the moment. Do you think there's an advantage to being a maker in how you approach these subject areas and processes? I think going back to what I said about learning how to play, I think play is such an essential part of how we explore and learn about things. And when I think about even the collaborations, working with Freddie and four incredible dancers from Maiden Voyage, we set up little, almost like a kind of lab of artistic things. You know, the way I would, you know, say, for example, take the lenses or play with the light or you know, observe the back of a spoon to see how it works and changes. You know, I get lost in things like that. And I think that has helped me to also observe. I mentioned about looking at the world around me, sort of seeing one of the ways that I was exploring sort of the idea of balance is I had been walking down after a conversation with one of my friends talking about balance and how it's just so difficult to kind of find just that point where everything you feel comfortable in your own skin where everything comes into place it's just so tentative and I've been running my hands along a hedge that somebody had cut very precisely and parallel to the footpath and kind of laughing internally about you know how this person had been so anal about how they cut the head but also kind of slightly impressed as well but as a maker I touch everything (laughs) so I'd been running my fingers along the very edge leaves of this hedge and suddenly was very aware that actually my fingers were really tuned in to where that invisible line was between hedge and path and realizing that that's what balance is about it's not about knowing everything and getting all the decisions right but it's about um being sensitized to where you're at at that moment and that time so when it came to actually recording I had my son who's just finished doing his degree in filming and his friends his friend filmed it and I very much was given the direction and in terms of like you know sort of doing really funky film kind of merges and edits and everything and cross cuts it kind of that wasn't what I needed I needed something that felt very meditative very much about how you breathe in and breathe out in a moment how you take that time to just sensitize into that moment and I think that's about making it is about the slow process of bringing that in so we played around with the image imagery everything looked really cool and funky but it wasn't right so I ended up actually going back into just very simple black out black in and where it felt like somebody had just breathed so how I approach even, I think sometimes the simplicity of not being afraid to go back to something very simple in terms of how your tools work. You know, we can, like when I look at really cool videos and think that's not, I, I'm not I'm not a video maker, I'm not a filmmaker, but actually I do have a language that's really important. And actually whenever I was doing that, I realised that in directing it, 
although I was the least experienced of the people working on that, I was the one who had the artistic vision. I knew what I wanted to say. I knew how it needed to feel. And I just needed a little bit of courage, having seen what didn't work, to go back and go, this is all I need. This is what will work for me. And it was the same with the GoPro one. Again, editing it myself and working out whether I needed sound, stripping it out. These are not things that I naturally knew how to do at that point, but I'm learning. And actually, it's also being strong enough to know who you are and what your voice is to be able to be brave enough to kind of do it. And the thing is, even if you put it into an exhibition and you kind of learn a new bit that you can kind of add to it, you know, pieces don't need to finish at one at a certain point. You know, you can kind of develop and process and continue on that thinking. Uh, going back to the journey but you know it's there's always more there's always more it's like fascinating makes my mouth water so I just keep doing it I think we can both really understand what you're saying there in terms of you know trying all these new processes because it really fits the idea that you have at the time it fits that criteria but whenever you were also saying about going back and seeing how work can really develop with time and then reflecting on it again. Has there ever been a piece of work that you've made that you can look back now and say, I'm done with that subject, what I made or the process that I took to do that work was more than enough? Do you feel like you've closed the chapter or you've closed those pieces? I think because I work with the concept around human beings that we're growing messy growing unique wonderful subject matter there is never the same thing that happens twice in terms of alchemy which is how I learned also to describe myself as an artist I'm not a ceramic maker but I used clay I'm not a glass maker but I used glass I'm not a videographer but I use video I'm not you know I'm not many things But what I am is an alchemist. I think because I'm so passionate about these conversations that are about actually liberating human beings to be frail and wonderful um, simultaneously, that is the kind of motivating factor. So I never actually get bored of shouting about freedom because freedom is when you actually stop holding yourself up on a pedestal or holding another person on a pedestal but actually allow ourselves to be incredible as we are so I don't get bored of that ever I have never yet got bored of it and all you need is another conversation with another human being that will inspire you to to kind of delve back into that subject in terms of materials I love materials I am a little bit obsessive about learning (laughs) so um it's not that I get bored of something it's just that I get excited about new things and but each of those new things then I bring back to create alchemy with the thing that I previously had my back knowledge and you realize the things that you hadn't clear about at one point in your life that you actually have them quite well under your belt so to actually bring another strategy of how to kind of explore that into it by just another little kind of skill or tool or way of thinking or new thought pattern just keeps it all fresh another thing whenever you were asking the question I'm in a position now where I'm actually teaching students and what I always say to them is that you are so unique that you know when you don't think that you can do something like quite often you get told oh miss I'm not already I can't draw 
it's not about that. It's about actually, as an artist, I am a creator. I am an explorer in the same way that science, you know, you observe, you test, you do little studies, you do your research and you observe the things that are happening around you. I'm observing what my hands do, what my materials do, what the environment does, what the people that I'm talking to do, what I do myself. And all of these come into a, like a place where I am able to create something quite unique. It's not that it hasn't been thought of or done before, but it's never been done through my voice or my eyes or my hands. And when those things are in your veins, when it's just like something that you're so passionate about, it has to come out your fingertips and that is a real privilege and a real pleasure to kind of just keep doing it. So I don't ever get done with ideas or thoughts. I just kind of, sometimes it's just getting a new stimulus that's, that sparks your kind of, your energy level again, that you just want to jump into it again. Do you have a favourite material to work with or have you had a piece that you've made that you're just like, oh, I love that so much, either in the aesthetic that's unrelated to the concept or just something you're like, oh, I really love having that in my home or, you know, who you've sold a piece to, they've really enjoyed it and seen it in such a different way that that meant a huge amount to you. I, I do have a piece that I actually really love, which is unusual in terms of, you know, it always feels very cocky to say something like that. But I think it was just because it combined several things at the point that I made it. It was a ceramic and video piece called Observe. And it had two uh, ceramic sculptural pieces that kind of interconnected to each other, but they had space in between. So at the time I was looking at the idea of Kintsugi, the Japanese process where cracks were mended with gold seams. And I was kind of thinking, well, what? how would I articulate what a gold seam is? Everybody assumed... I was going to start making kintsugi pots, which kind of cracked me up because um, <laughs> I was asked it quite a lot. But unintended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of this thought of the space in between, between the concrete start and the end of our cells, between life and death, that there's a space that's full of cracks and breaks and also beauty and hope and potential that I wanted to create this. So, and I'm always drawn to things like sky and fire and water, just as kind of things that every single person in the whole world is familiar with, that we always have the constant of a sky above us, but it's constantly changing. And I love that paradox within it. And I like it as a human being paradox as well. We are consistent, but we're constantly changing. So with these two ceramic pieces, they were suspended and one came, one was suspended and one came up from a box piece as a kind of framework that I put it into, but it had the video of the sky that was just imperceptibly shifting in behind it. And I just loved the kind of simplicity and meditative quality and the fact that it was a combination of the handmade with something that was beyond my control, like the movement of the sky. And it just did what I needed it to do at the time. It was about observing and staying in the space while you heal. And for me, it just worked. So I, I actually really enjoyed it while it existed because it no longer exists as a piece. <laughs> it was probably one of my favourite things that I've created. So we can't really escape the current pandemic. We're recording this virtually online, as we have for all the rest of our episodes for this series. And with you teaching as well, I'm sure it has impacted you quite hugely. How has your lockdown been? 
I am new-ish to teaching, so it's only been the last couple of years that I've gone back into a school setting, working as an art technician and a teacher. I actually wasn't well last year as well, so my lockdown happened from last, literally from I came back from Nottingham, having just presented my uh, Informants project and done like a symposium then. So I came back and my speech and my hands and my legs stopped working properly, which was quite traumatic because I was in the middle of doing a few projects and yeah as a maker the worst thing that you can think of is that your hands don't work and you can't express with them anymore but I was so fatigued with the illness that I had that I also didn't care and I was just starting to get back into building my strength again as lockdown happened so for me it was actually a place where it felt quite safe because I was you know, people were coming down to my level where they were stuck in a house and not able to do so much. But I had had to process a lot. Um, and again, because I always use my own personal experiences to explore what it is to be human, it gives you lots of stuff to think about, lots of stuff to kind of consider when the thing that you identify yourself with no longer is there and available to you or that life has to look differently. You know, you have to, that your whole life has changed in terms of your limitations and what you can do. So I haven't processed how that'll come out yet. It's interesting in that I was just asked to do this online piece of work for the Mental Health Festival, Looking at Loneliness. And it's really interesting because I'm not afraid to look at lots of things. But loneliness is a subject that you tend to try not to think about because it makes it worse. (laughs) So I had actually asked a few friends to give me their thoughts about loneliness. And these are incredible people, but actually it's really difficult. (laughs) So it's interesting in the light of COVID and in the terms of that you're limited in terms of your connection with people. and that feeling of connection, disconnection, it kind of just makes it feel like it's a really important thing to talk about. But I'm not quite sure how to do that yet. When it comes to my so I actually changed to having a new job as I got better, uh, as the lockdown was kind of easing. So I'm actually teaching art and moving image arts now, um, which is exciting. I realise that I have so much of the, the kind of film language in my veins as well. And I only work three day a week. So I'm, so I'm trying to continue to work on that balance of getting myself healthy and well, doing a really good job at in, in the teaching, but coming back to building confidence again I think because of my brain was foggy and I couldn't think very well either so my brain and my my hands which are so much part of who I am weren't working but the teaching's been great in that I'm actually realizing that I <laughs> I can't speak without forgetting everything that I'm saying or or that I can my hands are working again and it's been really good and that's built my confidence back to going and going oh it's okay I'm still me in the middle of that and um, so I'm just really looking forward to being able to get back into making again and this being asked to do this project gives you a stimulus because sometimes we need sometimes you get tired and you you know or you run out of have a boom or whatever it is that makes us keep working and it's great to have a stimulus from outside that kind of gets you to remind you you are an artist just because you haven't been creating doesn't mean you didn't stop thinking doesn't mean you didn't stop processing and 
as I always say, when something is being processed inside you, it is getting ready to come out your fingertips. So I don't know what that'll look like yet. As artists and makers, we are sharing our inner selves with other people. Mm. And you don't know how that's always going to be accepted or perceived. Yeah. But actually, I'm, I'm kind of all right with that now. I'm used to kind of being, as long as it is going the direction that I want it to go. And even if it's not perfect, I always have time to work on it, keep working. So what do you do then to unwind? I've been enjoying growing things in my garden, which I'm very grateful to have at this point in time, especially moving house before getting sick and before lockdown was such a good timing. I love going for walks. I just love breathing the air, being by the sea, being in water. love swimming, so I've done a bit of sea swimming. And I've been fortunate with the leisure centre staying open and being very rigid about how they're looking after everything um, hygiene-wise. So I've done quite a bit of swimming this last week. I like reading. I love cinema. I'm gutted that it's closed at the minute. Oh, absolutely. So probably too much time on Netflix and Amazon Prime. But yeah, um, we've all done it. And I think I would, um, I would like to get back to drawing a wee bit because I draw through materials in three dimension. I just commissioned a, a good friend of mine lives in London and kind of well-seasoned artist Peter Smith he's a printmaker he does the most exquisite drawings and mark making and it's just really inspired me to kind of maybe be brave enough to explore 2D drawing again because to be honest when you haven't done it for a while you feel so much pressure to be good but just to play again in that area. I love drawing. I haven't done it in a while, though. It's just one of those aspects that I want to, but it's just finding the time for anything, isn't it? It's more about priority. I think it was actually a gym that I follow on Instagram. I had <laughs> posted about it and they were like, um, oh, you know, don't make excuses in terms of, oh, I don't have time to work out or I don't have time to, for that. And they're like, no, that's not true. You're just not making it a priority. So I can see there's some truth in that. If you make it a priority enough, then you can find the time for it. I think it's given yourself permission as well to, to, yeah. to do it, you know, and I think as well, you know, while I'm so passionate about play and 3D materials, I am actually terrified when it comes to 2D <laughs> and it's not, I go so get it drawn and, and painting, but it's just, I guess, because I've explored finding my own language in 3D or in other, in, in kind of unknown materials, I actually don't know who I am as a 3D drawer in terms of my artistic um, uniqueness. So I'm still stuck in like foundation level drawing <laughs> where, where I'm, I'm a, a midlife kind of artist now in other areas. <laughs> I feel though that you definitely have a good go at mastering everything. Like the fact that you go between so many disciplines and so many materials, there's still such a beautiful finish to everything. And the idea that you're, you know, you have a fear of a material or drawing or process is kind of a bit mind blowing because you just approach everything with such a, and enthusiasm and dedication as well. I think it's a mixture of being somebody who loves to play and there's no fear in playing. But when you end up, I think it's also, there's still, it's again, it's that human thing where we are dictated to by how we we think we're perceived by other people or whatever, you know, so the thought of having to be good is quite terrifying and um, where whenever you just go I'm not I guess all the newer materials that I use I'm not supposed to be good at because I don't actually know what I'm doing <laughs> you know like so there's not that same sense of it but I don't know whether for yourselves as well the first thing that I get asked whenever I say that I'm an artist 
is, oh, what do you paint? I'm like, uh, I don't. <laughs> and it's not that you can't. It's just that that's not the language that you're exploring at this point in time or, you know, and because, as you say, Gemma, there's so many different uh, materials to kind of to explore and play with. There's not enough time in the, the world to kind of get through that in a lifetime, you know, but I think vulnerability is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And actually the best way to teach is to not be afraid of making mistakes and the more interesting stuff comes out of vulnerability and play. So I don't know what I'll be dreaming of for this loneliness project, but <laughs> there will be a bit of vulnerability and a bit of play in it and probably a bit of imperfection, but also a sense that, you know, like you said, I, I do like to finish things well or at least present them well. Um, and I think that was drilled into me by my tutors, Debbie Fraser and her masters or, you know, Anne or whatever, that actually there's a quality that you want to present, even if it's not about perfection, it's a certain quality. And it is about that conversation and language that comes across from your work. So towards the end of all of our conversations, we like to ask each guest, what was the last piece of locally made craft that you have bought or supported in some way? Well, I haven't not been out for very much per year it's sort of going back to last year so I, I would say probably some of my lovely jeweler friends who do gorgeous funky jewelry so Stuart Kearns's drawn silver earrings I've got a couple of those uh Robin as well so I have a nice piece of hers and Lotus to it but I think as well because I come from like a perspective of making and fine art thinking my friend Clinton got a, one of his lovely prints and as I said, my friend Peter Peter Smith, he's so, such a talented and humble artist, his gorgeous drawings. So I guess because I don't see any definition between fine and applied art, these are local and their friends that I actually just think their work is incredible. Yeah, everything quirky. I love as well. Oh, maybe that should be another question then that we should ask. Well, what's the next piece that you're going to buy? <laughs> that might be a nice one. It's always what you also, you know, I guess, obviously everybody knows that artists are very underpaid and we're just sort of supporting ourselves. So I think the reality is as well, we do a lot of swaps because I, I can't afford most people's work. I love it, but I can't afford it. And, you know, obviously if I maybe did a little bit more teaching, I might be able to, have a little bit more expendable income, um, which I guess I could reinvest back into it. But then I might not be able to be an artist as well. So maybe it's a swaps thing of just going, I love what you do. You love what I do. Let's swap. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of us do, just to have beautiful things in our house. This has been a really beautiful episode. I think we could speak to you all day. And your voice is so soothing as well. Like I'm wondering if we could have a line of like odd children's audiobooks you could do as well, Heather. It's great. <gasps> oh my goodness. Uh, I love myself and think I don't like how I speak. I was thinking you two have really nice kind of... Uh, what? <laughs> you have a lovely voice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, you're fantastic. You could just take over from the host. Uh, yeah. That we have. That would be really lovely, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't think either yourself, Robin, or I enjoy listening to ourselves. I have to edit these episodes and I'm editing it going, oh my God, will you just please shut up, Gemma? I'd like, stop it. <laughs> If I could just edit myself out of all the episodes, they'd be brilliant. They'd be really good. They would be so lacking. They would not be the same at all. They'd be (laughs) award-winning. But this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much for taking part, Heather. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. 
forward. Thank you, and thank you for making it so much easier. It's nice knowing that you're editing away, Gemma, because it means that you know there was definitely times where I'm like, oh my goodness, get to the point, Heather, get to the point. <laughs> what, <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you to the Arts Council for funding the second series as part of their Artist Emergency Programme. The next and last conversation of the second series is with ceramicist Anne Butler. 